the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm added that candidates provide five years of tax returns in the first place. You'll recall that it had already been struck down by a judge in relationship to making that requirement for presidential candidates who appear on the California ballot. So it looks like the Secretary of State uh, Shirley Weber's office has been taken to the, uh, the woodshed for a little bit of discipline. And Larry Elder, according to a decision handed down by Sacramento Superior Court Judge Lori Earle just a few hours ago, said yes, indeed, he just qualified and his name will be on the ballot this September. So good news there for uh, Larry Elder. All right, much to talk about here on today's program. Um, We're going to pivot to a topic that um, is an important one, Uh, certainly for the community of faith as we follow events that unfold in the Middle East. And as you know, there's been a recent uh, change in leadership there. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who you know has been a guest many times on this program down through his, what, 15, 16 years as Prime Minister of Israel, um, was forced to step down from that position. And there is a new Prime Minister in Israel, Naftali Bennett. We're going to get a look at uh, not only some of the challenges that the new PM is going to be facing coming into office, but um, maybe also get a sense of um, what the political climate is like in the Middle East today. And joining us with some insights is Greg Roman. Greg is the director of the Middle East Forum. Greg, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us and joining us even a little bit earlier than scheduled tonight to talk about this very important topic. Now, as I mentioned, Benjamin Netanyahu down through the years has been a guest on this program on multiple occasions. I know him to be a man that is hardline on terrorism, is a solid free market capitalist, and has taken a tough stance on Iran, recognizing the kind of threat that Iran is not only to peace throughout the Middle East, but quite frankly, global. Give us your sense as uh, Naftali Bennett comes into office, what kind of changes can we anticipate in terms of not just leadership style, but positions on some of these key issues, including dealing with the Palestinians, dealing with West Bank occupation, dealing with the challenges posed by Iran? The difference of moving from Netanyahu to Naftali Bennett as the Prime Minister and Yair Lapid as the alternate Prime Minister is similar to going from someone like Marshall Falk when he was to start running back for the uh, St. Louis Rams, now the LA Rams, back in the 90s, and all of a sudden going to running back by committee, but still scoring the same results. We've gone from a star prime minister, internationally known, respected, sometimes hated, but at least vilified with reason by his opponents. And now we have a largely unknown quantity in Naftali Bennett, someone who has not really been on the international stage. And it's also relatively new for most Israelis who are not familiar with him outside of his voting bloc. So you have to take that into consideration every time we compare the two of them. Now, as it relates to the new government's policies, externally, they're not much different than Prime Minister Netanyahu's was. They're opposing Iran and nuclearization. They're very concerned about Syria. 
They are concerned about the tumult in Lebanon, and basically its way to being a failed state. And they're still trying to find ways to deal with Hamas, um, other Islamist terror organizations which are active both within Israel's borders and beyond. And a lot of the same security officials who were under Netanyahu are in place under the new prime minister. But it doesn't mean that the way they're going to deal with what I would call non-kinetic problems would be particularly different as it relates to their other challenges. Uh, now, I think that if we go one by one, we can do that, but just in terms of the overall strategy with the U.S. and with Europe, we see this now in this NSO scandal, the, the Pegasus project they're calling it as it's unfolding. Instead of Netanyahu, whose position would probably would have been to stand strong and to, to have bellicose diplomacy, which is not always a bad thing, Bennett and Lapid are trying to ameliorate the fallout from this by saying, look, this took place under a different administration. We are going to look at this. This is against the rule of law. And they're using more diplomatic language. But at the end of the day, it's still Israel. And we saw this response to the Ben and Jerry's boycott that took place. I think it was announced two days ago. They're equating it to anti-Semitism. And they're saying Israel won't stand for it. So if they're going to go this way in terms of how they're approaching policy, you're not going to see too much different on the foreign stage. Just a difference in style and technique, but not policy goals. In your viewpoint, Greg, are there any concerns to be raised over, well, quite frankly, just a, a difference in experience? You look at the number of years that Benjamin Netanyahu was involved in the Knesset. Um, as I mentioned, I, I, he's got to easily have been served over the course of, of two different terms um, or two different periods of time, I should say, uh, easily uh, 12, 15 years as prime minister. And given the complexities of the world stage today, and particularly in view of the challenges that Israel is constantly facing, more so perhaps than any other uh, country when it comes to being literally surrounded by uh, nothing but enemies and, and having a kind of a very carefully and stealthfully and deathfully um, and negotiate through every set of circumstances. Uh, are there any, you think, concerns to be raised over just differences of experience between one versus the other? I mean, I have to offer the suggestion that Prime Minister Netanyahu's security experience was not necessarily a net positive. All of that time on the world stage may have made him uh, amenable to not necessarily adopting new strategies. Just look at three things. Number one, he fought four rounds against Hamas in Gaza. And the terror organization is stronger today than it was when he came to office in 2009. He made a policy goal of not just preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, but preventing them from having the ability to go on a breakout track. I think that they're closer to a nuke today than they were in 2009. I would even go so far as to say that the way that Netanyahu dealt with security relationships with allies was by running it through the prime minister's office rather than allowing Israel's diplomats to handle those relationships. In doing so, it's let President Biden get to a point where he's now basically adopting a policy to try to sabotage the Abraham Accords. Israel's new peace treaties with Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates. And I think, and, and, and you can't call these guys fresh blood, right? Because a majority of the ministers in the new government served as ministers either as part of Netanyahu's Tea Party, 
when they were in power sometime over the last 12 years before they left and started their own parties, or they stroke these ministers and his government, not part of this party. So while the prime minister has been replaced, a lot of the same people who were the supporting staff now have a lead role. And I think that they have to be given a chance. And as you point out, some of those, um, shall we say, career diplomats do have the background, they have the history, they have the experience. So you would accept to say, expect to hope to have some degree of, of consistency there. But you, you made mention to the Abraham Accords, and I want to come back to that after a timeout, because while perhaps in the grander scheme of things in relationship to things like uh, relations between, uh, say, Israel and the Palestinians, um, Israel certainly in, in Syria, different bit of uh, set of circumstances there. But the Abraham Accords allowed Israel to come to terms with an official recognition and peace. In, in the case, certainly, of, of Sudan for the first time in, my goodness, so 40-something years, 50-something years, I think, since the 67 war. And, and, uh, and, and even, you know, so-called minor players that signed on to that, nevertheless, helping to overall buoy the position of Israel that finally there was some official recognition taking place by some of Israel's own neighbors, uh, historic certainly in the making, and I have to wonder whether or not any of that with the change in leadership both in in Jerusalem as well as in Washington, D.C., could be at risk. Joining me today is Greg Roman. Greg is the director of the Middle East Forum. We're talking about changes in Israel with a new prime minister and certainly with a new president here in the United States. How might the tone, how might the tenor, both between relations between the U.S. and Israel change and Israel on the world stage. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back with an update on traffic, or right after an update on traffic, and then return with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As you know, that part of the world, the Middle East, has a history of being a, a very fragile powder keg. There is so much of a sense of territorialism going on, as it has historically since the founding of the Jewish state in 1948, that um, it, it takes not only a deft touch, as I alluded to in the previous segment, but you, you, you really need to understand the cast of characters and how much is at stake with the wrong diplomatic moves. We're visiting today with Greg Roman. Greg is the director of the Middle East Forum. As you know, there is a new prime minister in Israel. And um, in addition to uh, positions on um, terrorism and uh, things of this sort, uh, I, I mentioned a couple of these real potential sticking points certainly have proven to be challenges for not only Benjamin Netanyahu, but all of his uh, predecessors. And that is most predominantly dealing with the Palestinians. Now, steadfastly, there have been repeated attempts to try and get Palestinians to recognize Israel's right to exist, to recognize Israel as a legitimate state. Uh, that has yet to really come to fruition. Under the previous American administration, we had kind of put pause on further levels of aid to the Palestinians, basically in large part due to that significant um, um, sticking point in the U.S. effort to try and broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace settlement. Uh, now that the new administration is coming in, and I understand ramping up aid to the Palestinians yet once again, 
doesn't that kind of take away the um, the carrot versus stick opportunity here to try and and bring Palestine to the table and get them to finally acknowledge Israel's right to exist? Right, and I don't think that it's necessarily carrot or stick. I would call it something for nothing diplomacy. I just wrote about this in the American Spectator last week, and I'm glad that you brought up this conundrum. When President Trump came to office, he approached foreign policy as a matter of interest. The U.S. has interest A, B, and C. Second or third party country has similar goals for their own policies, and then there's a trade that takes place. And it's not putting the carrot out and saying, if we take this, we'll go forward and we'll have a deal, and if you don't take this, we'll be punitive towards you. The way that the Trump administration dealt with the Palestinians was largely how you deal with a crying child at the table. You say, go to your room and come back when you're ready to eat dinner again. And I think that the way in which Trump proceeded by bypassing the Palestinian issue and not linking it to the ability for Israel to make peace with its Arab neighbors wasn't just a, a brilliant move on behalf of the policymakers and his advisors. It was a way to reset the Israeli-Palestinian conversation that the U.S. will not wait for the Palestinian issue to be resolved before it tries and makes attempts, just like Jimmy Carter kind of did with Egypt-Israel and how Clinton did with Jordan-Israel and the two previous peace treaties which took place in the late 70s and in the early 90s. And those were really exceptions to the rule of American Middle East policymaking. But here we go with President Biden coming back in, and it's not even that he is prioritizing the Palestinians over the recent deals that were reached between Israel and its new Arab friends, but he's pushing it aside in his administration as even to go into lengths to try to sabotage those new deals. And I think that there's this really uh, uh, even even level of animus that the State Department has and the National Security Council has under Biden, where they're doing everything that they can, even if there were some benefits to Trump's policies, to spite them because they were Trump's, not because they were well thought out and they were put forward, and refunding the Palestinians and trying to move the U.S. consulate from Tel Aviv back to Jerusalem and even going so far as to suggest that there's room for more peacemaking between the two, while the Palestinians have not moved an inch towards the Israeli position or even the American position. If anything, they're being placated now, and in doing so, they will continue with those problems that you elucidated at the beginning of this segment. Well, and you know, the, the irony, Greg, is that for sort of the, um, shall we say, the lion's share of um, American involvement in the diplomacy in the Middle East, th this has been the approach. Well, we'll just have to placate more, surrender more, give more, and eventually the Palestinians will come to the table. That certainly never worked when Yasser Arafat was in charge. It hasn't uh, worked since Palestine became uh, more officially recognized as a as a quasi-state, and so the notion of somehow returning to the same methodology that has proven itself to be an utter failure over and over and over again, I, I'm reminded, what, what is the old saying about uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly over and over and expecting different results each time? I mean, we, we seem to kind of be heading back to square one here, where at least heretofore, this sort of line in the sand that the president had drawn saying, look, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to continue to just write checks unconditionally 
and uh, we have been able to bring other states in the area to the table, brokered an agreement, brought about official recognition of Israel. Why don't you use that or, or kind of maybe providing the subliminal message? Look at this. Use it as an example. And if, if you can be willing to come to the table, have some discussions, provide recognition, then you provide the reward. And, and, and this is where there seems to be this, this, this disconnect. And I'm fearful that we're, we're just simply telegraphing to the Palestinians, hey, you essentially can, can continue to do what you've been doing for the past 40 years without repercussions whatsoever. Right. And I would even say it's a level of sort of cognitive dissonance in all the policymakers' minds, where they are not just sort of like signaling to the Palestinians, oh, it's okay for you to continue, and your opposition will continue to subsidize your people's suffering. Because that, that's, that's effectively what the American aid to the Palestinians is. It keeps Hamas in control in Gaza by giving the bare minimum necessary for Gazans to have substance while still being cemented with radical ideology. And it keeps the kleptocrats in control in Ramallah by having them have the money to be able to provide these handout jobs and these civil systems not based on meritocracy or the advancement of the Palestinian people, but based on handouts. I mean, the percentage of the budget of Palestinian authority operations on a per annum basis usually is a majority funded by foreign governments. And like I said beforehand, there's no strings attached to it. They write a check, they give the money, and the problems continue. And there is no incentive for the Palestinians to be able to come to the table and to try to not capitulate in some of their positions, but at least make an offer and to try to have a counteroffer, just like what Trump did with all the other Arab countries in Israel. They're actually incentivized to keep on misbehaving because now they see that they have a proven solution for obtaining funding. Just say no, and we'll still write you a check. And as long as that goes on, I really think that we might get to this critical mass where an Israeli government, whether it be this one, or another one, 10, 20, 30 years from now, is going to have to make a decision on the future of the Palestinian people, and they're not going to have input on it. The Palestinians won't be able to have their own self-determination. At least at this point, this new Israeli government has expressed the willingness to try to give some more Palestinian autonomy with the way that the, Ministry of, the Israeli Ministry of Defense relates to all the different organs that control the Palestinian question. And if the Palestinians keep on saying no, they're not just going to lose the Israelis, who really, a majority of whom want to, want to see a two- or three-state solution, but it's going to lose the Arab allies that they've had traditionally, and hopefully a sensible administration in this country will come into power, and they'll say, we're not just going to put the Palestinians in the proverbial timeout spot, but we're going to completely disconnect from them writ large. And when that happens, it's going to be a disaster, not just for the Palestinians, but for the entire region. Well, and, and, and therefore for the entire world. And what's problematic here is, I think you're alluding to, Greg, and that is that we seem to be once again locked in this vicious cycle of capitulation uh, that moves nothing forward. And if the message is communicated that you can effectively uh, come to the table with your hands out, uh, expect to come and only receive, not to give, not to have any uh, you know meeting of the minds or, or uh, level of capitulation at any to any degree, what 
whatsoever. Uh, you know, you, you, you've, you've kind of trained them into behaving this way, and I would liken it to a lot of the behavior that we've historically seen from North Korea. Uh, North Korea backs itself into a corner economically. They also suffer from uh, things like, you know, mismanagement of farmland and drought, and there's terrible suffering that goes on because of famine. And so what do they do? They come out, they saber rattle, they make threats, they shoot some missiles over the bow of a Japanese ship, and suddenly we run to the table and say, well, if you'll just shut down your nuclear program, we'll write you a check. And uh, we, we've been sort of playing that game with North Korea for the better part of 70 or 60 years now, and none of it has ever come to fruition. None of it has ever brought us anywhere closer to trying to come to some sort of a diplomatic, long-term, permanent resolution with North Korea. And, I, and I'm fearful that we're, we're kind of creating the same scenario here, would you think? Well, I, I think that it's not just a track for that, but it's a message to other opponents of the United States in the Middle East, akin to the North Korea example, akin to the way in which they're trying to placate Iran with the new Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action Two or the second Iran deal, and the way that they deal with the Palestinians. But there is a policy that the U.S. government can encourage Israel to adopt, which will lead to peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and ultimately benefit the Palestinian people the most. And that's something that we've been writing about at the Middle East Forum. We have a project for it for the last four or five years, what we call the Victory Proposal. The idea that wars end, not when one side declares victory, but another side recognizes the futility of their war goals, and they give up that violent internecine struggle against those living next to it, and they decide that the better path to peace is to say, you know what? We'll write a letter to the editor the next time we're angry. We won't launch a suicide bombing campaign. And the only way you can do that is if the U.S. government says to the Israeli government, Israel, win your war against Palestinian rejectionism. We'll be there if you pick up the pieces and get the Palestinian house in order. When they realize, and this is the Palestinian people, not just the leadership realize, that deterrence is not the only policy they're pushing forward, but the complete annihilation of the idea that Palestinians can live in all the land of Israel rather than just trying to have their own land that they currently live in now. So if, if the U.S. government would do that, it's a drastic step. That's the way wars win, when the other side gives up. And you use the term annihilation, and I think appropriate one, because there's another um, uh, neighbor state that is problematic in the region. And if you can stay with us for a few more minutes, Greg, I'd like to have you address that as well. And that, of course, is the ongoing threat of Iran. With us today is Greg Roman. He is the director of the Middle East Forum. We are talking about not only changes in the political realm in Israel with the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, coming in on the heels of Benjamin Netanyahu, who served in the role for better part of 15 years, uh, potential changes in that dynamic in terms of uh, relations with the uh, the neighbor states of Israel, but broader questions as it relates to U.S. support for Palestine, providing financial aid, uh, the inability to not only broker a lasting peace agreement with acknowledgement of Israel's right to exist, but as I think Greg Roman is suggesting, we're, we're kind of training not only the countries in that part of the region, but, but enemies across the world that, you know, it's not that difficult to get one over on the United States and in the process have them write you checks. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, what about the lingering threat to Israel's security and the rest of the world by a nuclear Iran? I'm Craig Roberts. A time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
The country of Israel shares borders with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and in a sense with Palestine, of course. But one of the countries with whom it does not share a border and yet is one of its most hostile neighbors, and that is Iran. And, you know, down through the years, we have monitored Iranian government television. We've heard the imams on a Friday afternoon get up and uh, not only denounce Israel's right to exist, but even uh, threaten them with outright annihilation, a word that Greg Roman used just a moment ago before the break. And um, it's a great concern. Worse so uh, that there is this lingering question over progress of the uh, so-called Iranian nuclear project. Uh, we know that they signed a non-proliferation treaty, my goodness, I think back in the 1970s. Um, but just because you sign one doesn't mean that you're going to respect one. So let's talk for a moment to Greg Roman about Iran its relationship with Israel and how it continues to be a pretty significant thorn in Israel's side. What are your, what are your thoughts and is there is there any potential change in the dynamic there with a new prime minister on board? Sure. So I think we have to address the problems within Iran first, then talk about the U.S.'s the Iran relationship, and then get to the quandary that Israel has with Iran. And, and the bigger problem is Iran's proxies that do border uh, Israel north, south, and in the northeast of the country. So briefly, Iran is about to go into a downward spiral to an even more radical place in the next four years than where it sits today. Its new president, the former head of the judiciary, uh, won the election a few weeks ago and will basically be positioning himself as Ayatollah Khamenei's uh, successor heir apparent. This is a guy who uh, isn't just accused of war crimes, in the 1980-1988 Iran-Iraq War, but also was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Iranians that were perceived as enemies of the Islamic Revolution in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, when he comes to power, the way in which there's been a traditional rift between uh, President Rouhani, who's considered a, a quote-unquote moderate, I would just call him a less extreme version of the, 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 the least or most extreme figure in the country. Um, they tried to err in, in, in the way to go towards diplomacy, but the ministers who will be reporting to the new president will most likely be uh, acolytes of the Ayatollah and will very much have that country now almost wholly controlled by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. But the fate of Iran is suffering almost uh, unmeasurable challenges that many people don't often spend time thinking about. The water shortage in the country has turned flowing rivers into dust beds, akin to dust bowl in the states during the Great Depression. The amount of riots that are going on in the Arab-majority province of Khuzestan, which is one of Iran's main oil beds that abuts the Persian Gulf, has led to dozens of people being killed on streets just in the past few days. And if you go back to the riots that took place and almost uh, almost akin to an insurrection in late 2019, right before the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Iran has the it's akin to a powder keg that's ready to explode if their internal suppression machinery against their own population isn't ready to work. Which leads us to the U.S.-Iran relationship. One of the reasons why Iran was facing these protests in late 2019 was because the U.S. sanctions that Donald Trump had snapped back on the country by withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal once it found Iran in violation of that treaty effectively had 
the ability to make Iran and its government accountable to Iranians. It didn't have a $150 billion splurge. They came back to it. It was released when President Obama lifted sanctions after the Iran deal was signed in 2015. People started looking internally by saying, are you pursuing nuclear power and your overseas ambition to have a Shia crescent from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean at the expense of our own welfare? And more than that, when the Ayatollahs couldn't deliver basic services and you had rolling blackouts, and you had water shortages, and you have these now almost daily disruptions which are going on with Iran's nuclear infrastructure, many of which have been attributed to Israel's secret services and to its intelligence services, the Iranians start thinking, okay, what is it that this country prioritizes, us or its own sort of uh, um, megalomaniac ambitions, fueled by religious extremism? So when you think about the U.S.-Iran relationship which is going on, it seems as if though the U.S. is investing more of its time into coddling its enemies and those who have stated that they're, you know, urging the destruction of the U.S.'s main allies, like Israel in the Middle East, to the chagrin of the Iranian people. Because if the U.S., again, capitulates and signs on to a nuclear deal, which doesn't finish the Iranian nuclear program, but just delays it again for another day, Iran will get stronger, it'll get more money, it'll be able to sort of buy off its own citizenry and say, see, look, we got a deal, yet we haven't capitulated on anything, so maybe moving a few centrifuges, which we can just reactivate whenever we want to, which gets you back to where we started, the Israel-Iran conversation. As it relates to the nuclear program, Israel is currently planning two scenarios. One, in which it can live with an Iranian nuclear weapon, which I think is a fait accompli and is a horrible strategic decision if it decides to go that route. And two, making a plan to destroy some 238 different Iranian nuclear installations if the U.S. enters into a deal again with Iran, and if there's intelligence which indicates that Iran is on a breakout track towards a nuclear weapon, even if it does sign onto a new deal with the United States. And then that brings us to the proxy problem. The real issue and threat with Iran today is not the nuclear weapons project. It's its sponsorship of extremist organizations in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and other areas of the Middle East, which are not often spoken about, and its desire to use them to project Iranian influence, which will then be used to kick American influence out of the Middle East. We might even be getting to the point right now where we see the great American retreat from the region for the first time in 20 years after we left Afghanistan a few weeks ago, where we're getting to the point where it will no longer be a battle for American supremacy in the Middle East, it'll be a battle between Iranian interests and Russian interests in terms of who will be the major hegemon in the region. And if we get to that point, I don't want to have Israel have to decide between Russia and the United States. Because I can guarantee you this, while the Russians may be using the Iranians right now to try to kick the Americans out, once that happens, they'll start projecting their influence into the Mediterranean, and that'll start threatening our allies in Europe. If that takes place... It's not an Iranian nuclear I'm worried about. It's the complete evaporation of American power and influence in the entire region. 
Yeah, and there are other stage uh, world players on the stage, and, and including certainly Russia and China, that would just love to have that opportunity uh, to not only uh, help to assist in hastening of our demise, but then step in an hour stead and allow that to give them leverage to um, have more influence and greater control over that part of the world. It is as complex and certainly as involved as the layers of an onion, and I appreciate Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum, for helping to shed some light uh, on what has been historically and will clearly for the uh, time being continue to be a, uh, a powder keg, and um, requiring extreme degrees of diplomacy and deft touch, uh, whether or not the current administration can deliver, well, time will certainly tell. More information, by the way, about the work of Greg Roman and the Middle East Forum, simply go to meforum.org. That's M-E for Middle East, meforum.org. And I appreciate Greg Roman for taking some extra time to spend with us tonight, educating and uh, shedding some light on these complex and yet very critical issues on this edition of Lifeline. 5.46 on the clock. Let's uh, step aside, get you updated on some traffic. And Nate, you may want to just dump the traffic. Unless I can, I can make up a traffic report and um, see what everybody thinks. <laughs> you may have to reboot the automation system to make that go bye-bye. And uh, as he's working on that, my, I don't mind working with music, but normally I like a full piece, you know, 100-piece orchestra and uh, <clears throat> string section the whole bit. If we're going to do it, let's do it right. <laughs> so while he uh, he works to try and get the KFAX band to uh, simmer down there, let's uh, let's pivot to another topic, and you're going to think, is he talking about Christmas in July? Absolutely. My father, whose birthday was June 25th, used to be uh, always thrilled to remind us on his birthday that it was uh, uh, just exactly six months before Christmas. And then, of course, at Christmas time, he would remind us that it was just six months before another very important birth, his, <laughs> in June. So with that spirit in mind, uh, let's talk a bit about Christmas. More specifically, um, the tradition that literally tens of thousands of families all across the Bay Area over many, many years have used to kind of formally kick off the official start of their Christmas celebration and that of course is an experience at Bethlehem AD going strong for my goodness well over 20 years and uh, last year as you know in December because of the impact of COVID they had to pivot to a uh, an online version of the event based on uh, previous recordings but they are coming back they are roaring back in full strength looking forward to Bethlehem AD 20. 21. And uh, you wouldn't believe that it takes six months of pre-planning, but if you've ever attended Bethlehem AD, then maybe you will. Paula Dresden joins us, creative director with Bethlehem AD. And Paula, normally we bring you on, we play a little bit of Christmas music. I'm going to forgo that so they don't think I've completely <laughs> lost my mind. But uh, great to have you with us. And tell us all about what's on the, uh, what's on the agenda. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. It's such a privilege to be with you this evening. Yeah, we're thinking Christmas. We're um, trying to get, you know, everything working so that it'll flow smoothly at Christmas time. And we have a few needs that are coming up that I'd like to get filled so I can sleep easy. And uh, one of the big needs that we have is we're looking for a top chef, <laughs> someone that would oversee the cooking at the, during the performance at the, at the fires. So um, our menu is pretty simple. We have um, we grill chicken, uh, lamb, and beef, and then we put that in a pita pocket along with a lentil stew that is the cook would have to prepare it 
uh, beforehand or have someone else do it. And then we put sour cream or um, yogurt on top, and it is a hit with all the participants. It's not for the people who walk through. It's not for the attendees. It's for those who are there volunteering. And we have about 300 to 400 people each night who are hungry and need to be fed with all their acting and stuff. So um, it's, it's, it's really what I love about it is that uh, children who normally uh, don't go for, you know, odd dishes or, or anything like that um, absolutely love this pita pocket that we prepare, which is so healthy for them. So um, it kind of melts my heart when I see them get excited about it. Lots of them say that's their favorite part of Bethlehem is the, is the pita with lentils and chicken. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, tell us in stuff. terms of this. So, you're looking for a new head chef, yeah? Uh, and I would imagine, as as we often discuss uh, every year, the number of volunteers that it takes to pull this off is is increasingly growing uh, year by year, and and part of it has to range from just not only the the, the sheer uh, complexity of the production, but thing, things also like uh, security. I understand that uh, while historically the city of Redwood City used to provide police protection, now they've uh, they've shifted that over to uh, uh, to Bethlehem AD, so there's an additional expense that needs to be borne. Give us a kind of a thumbnail sketch, if you can, Paula, in terms of uh, the kind of volunteers that you're going to need heading into uh, putting this production together for um, Christmas of 2021 and and the other ways in which people can be supportive and and uh, help make this annual tradition continue in all its splendor and glory for yet another year well thank you for this i actually the redwood city police still do come to bethlehem ad and make sure that uh, we're protected and they have their complete police force is behind them maybe not all there at once obviously but you know they have about five guys there but we have to pay for this and they bring a paddy wagon, and they bring uh, safety for keeping people safe from cars going by as we're lined up and things like that. And it's expensive, you know. So they used to cover that for us, now no longer. So we have to pay the Redwood City Police to come out, which is an, an expense that is a little bit of a shock to our budget because, you know, everybody works for free, uh, including myself. So what we have is... The little money we have is very precious. We like spending it on food, preferably. But anyway, we have to. We're looking for um, in the simplest way to just give a donation to Bethlehem AD. But other than that, we do need uh, street clothes people to assist the police, and then we need actors. And building up towards Bethlehem, uh, we're always looking for a new crew because, as you can see, losing our cook, people come and go as they're able. This woman um, that we're losing has worked with us for 25 years, so, you know, it's time she oh wants my. to retire. <laughs> Not me, though. I'm going for it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we need someone else, people to fill in spots where others um, are not able to do it anymore. And that changes year to year. We're always looking for centurions as actors, and they help the police, too. They dress up. We're always looking for people to help in construction, to help me with sewing. We, all, we are always updating our costumes and trying to make them look really great. Um, we, our King's costumes, for example, are very, very elaborate. And actually, the um, members of the city council, Redwood City City Council, become wise men. So we like to make them look super special, and it's like a really... You know, 
coveted role in a way. So stuff like that. I just like updating and need to sew and cook and all this stuff. It's a big job. But it's fun when you're there all at once with everybody. You hardly notice that it's work at all. It's just really a great, great time. And, um, you know, each year we never know whether Bethlehem is going to make it another year because the lot we are on belongs to the church, but the church um, is always constantly sort of thinking, well, you know, should we sell the lot and maintenance our church better because it's falling down, kind of falling apart, or should we keep it for Bethlehem, and there's also a, a street life um, group that meets there twice a week. So it's a vacant lot, which is very, very uh, precious, and um, I just don't know year to year whether it's still going to be there for us. So, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to do Bethlehem AD with your family or just come by yourself, and it's just an, a memorable experience that uh, you'll, will keep you for a lifetime. So... And if you'd like to get more information about the volunteering, pitching in, being a part of this amazing production, that's uh, uh, 20, 25 years now, is it, uh, Paula? No, it's no, it's 28 years now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like me, it's getting long in the tooth, yes. <laughs> and, and short in the memory, I might add, with that. Yeah, well, yeah. 20, 28 years, and I, I think you've been on the air with us um, talking about Bethlehem AD, uh, probably 20, 26 or 27 of those uh, 28 yeah. years, to be sure. And as I mentioned, so many families have now come to embrace the Bethlehem AD experience, the living manger scene, as it's often called, um, as sort of the official start to their own family Christmas celebrations that uh, we want to make sure that this continues and uh, changes in personnel. Now's an opportunity. If you'd like to get involved, maybe you're involved in, in acting right now, or you're a set builder, a set designer. You want to help with coordination, planning, uh, a volunteer chef to help feed the crew. Um, there's so many positions that are available for you to get involved and, and make a difference. And uh, you can get more details as there's going to be a, a special kickoff meeting for Saturday, September the 18th, but don't wait till then. Yeah. Go to BethlehemAD.com right now. Get more information. And if you're not uh, fully aware of what Bethlehem AD is, there is a video up there that's still available from their production that they uh, put online for Christmas of last year. And uh, you can go simply to Bethlehem AD and uh, click on the watch button and to get a chance to sort of uh, virtually experience it. Compares nothing to the real thing, I assure you. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a great opportunity to be involved, make a difference, give a tremendous gift to the uh, the peninsula community folks come from all over northern california to experience bethlehem ad so if it's something you'd like to play a part in here's your chance details on the web bethlehemad.com that's bethlehemad.com and we thank paula dresden the creative mind behind bethlehem ad for ad for sharing that update six o'clock from kfax speaking of updates we'll do one on news first though a look at traffic